Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. What does real faith look like, and what is our part if we want to experience the abiding love of Christ? Award-winning investigative journalist Petra Resky is one of the world's leading experts in the Italian Mafia. Her book, The Honored Society, a portrait of Italy's most powerful mafia, delves into the personal lives and the faith of its members and supporters. Believe it or not, faith in God and living like a mafioso are fairly common in the strange world of Italian mobsters. For example, Sicilian mafioso Marcello Fava, who later left his mafia clan, told an Italian journalist, quote, Before I had to kill someone, I would always cross myself. I would say, Dear God, stand by me. Make sure nothing bad happens. But I wasn't the only one who crossed himself beforehand and prayed to God. We all did. When Mafia boss Bernardo Provenzano was arrested, the police found him with five Bibles with hundreds of his own margin comments and passages underlined. In his home were 91 sacred statues, 73 of them Christ figures, and each of them bore the inscription, Jesus, I put my trust in you. Mafia boss Michael Greco had four books in his prison cell. He had two liturgical books, a copy of the Gospels, and a book entitled Pray. During his trial, when asked for an explanation if he had any remorse for his many murders, he merely replied, No, I have an invaluable gift of inner peace. This morning, Jesus is going to teach us that the proof of abiding in his love will be shown in how we live our lives. Look at verse 10 with me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What does it mean to remain in the vine? What does it mean to abide? I'm going to use those words interchangeably this morning, but in brief, it simply means to depend. Just as the branch depends on the vine, so we're supposed to depend upon God. But what does that mean? If you look carefully, I think Jesus in two places actually gives us some very specific and very practical ways to remain in him or abide in him. First of all, he says, if my words remain or abide in you, then you will bear fruit. Secondly, he says, if my love abides in you, then you will bear fruit. Now, this is a promise shallow enough for a child to paddle in, but also deep enough that the greatest mind could dive into it and never be afraid of striking the bottom. But this statement does involve a condition. If we do as he commands, we are identified as his friends and recipients of his sacrifice. Now, let me make clear that this is not to suggest we must obey perfectly, for after all, None of us are able to do that. Instead, this speaks of our intent to pursue his aims by following his instructions. Now, make no mistake about it. The essence of sin is rebellion against God's law. Samuel rebuked Saul for his failure to do what God had commanded him when he said, Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Obedience, of course, also does not earn salvation, though. 
Salvation is solely by grace through faith, not as a result of works, so that nobody can boast, as Ephesians 2.8 says. Or in the words of Titus 3.5, it says, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by his Holy Spirit. That means this morning, if you're a Christian, God's love for you knows no increase or decrease. It admits no degrees. In Christ, you are perfect. You don't get more loved on a day in which you have been good and less loved on a day in which you have been bad. Now, there is no rest really without a faith like that, and this was God's principle from the beginning. In creation, God worked from the first day until the sixth day, and then he rested on the seventh. We may truthfully say that God was very busy those first six days. Then the task that he had set for himself had been completed, and he ceased to work. The seventh day became the Sabbath of God. It was God's rest. But what of Adam? Where did he stand in relation to the rest of God? Adam, we were told, was created on the sixth day. So clearly, he had no part in those first six days of work, for he came into being only at their end. So really, God's seventh day was, in fact, Adam's first full day. Whereas God worked six days and then enjoyed the Sabbath rest, Adam began his life with the Sabbath. For God works before he rests, while man must first rest, and then alone can we enter into God's work. In his famous sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, Jonathan Edwards said this, There is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense in your heart of the love and beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of tasting its sweetness. The hymn writer Isaac Watt put it in these lines. The hills of Zion yield a thousand sacred sweets before we reach heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. So it is clear this morning that obedience is not the means of salvation, but it will be the inevitable result of it. It is the proof that a person has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The branches that abide in Christ, the true vine, Jesus says, will doubtless bear fruit. That's why those who have embraced this have seen change in their lives. And that's good. Because if you knew what some of the people used to be who are sitting next to you this morning, well, let's say you'd be clutching your purse or your wallet a whole lot closer to yourself. But for many people, they feel like they must constantly work to obtain God's favor and then after that work to keep God's favor. And that's very typical. When you first get into Christianity without knowing any better, what you actually do is you move into all kinds of mechanical compliance instead of having just an organic change. Because very often the focus is on busyness and serving Jesus instead of having friendship with Jesus. Because when you first become a Christian, you hear that and you embrace this, that you're not saved by your good works. You're just saved by grace. But, it is very hard for the human heart to accept that and to believe that. So what you do normally is you get busy doing several things. But at the end, you're going to find out that if you're doing that apart from abiding in the vine, 
you're really not going to be changing all that much. In fact, in my case, after two or three years of being a Christian, you're not much more loving. You're not much more joyful. You're not much more patient. You're not much more humble. You're really no better at taking criticism. You're no better at overcoming your habits. In fact, really, you haven't changed at all. You've changed a little bit, but there's very little fruit when we try to do it in our own way. Why? Because we're not drawing life from the vine. In that case, in essence, we have become the vine. But here's the thing. None of us in here, or no one who has ever lived, can ever do enough to merit salvation. Here's an illustration I think will help. Imagine the qualification to get into heaven is just this. All you have to do is go to Myrtle Beach and then swim always all the way across the Atlantic Ocean all the way to Spain. Now, it's only 4,040 miles. Now, imagine you watch the first three people try this. You have one person who can't swim at all. You have a second person who's just an average swimmer. And you have a third person who's actually an Olympic gold medalist in swimming. Well, the, per the first person who can't swim starts off and drowns in about 90 seconds. The average swimmer makes it about six and a half miles, but then they also tire out and drown. But the Olympic swimmer, well, they actually went a little over 155 miles, which is the world record, by the way. But eventually, they also drown, about 3,900 miles short of the goal. My point, that is the problem of trying to work your way into heaven. It doesn't matter if you drown in 90 seconds or a little later on in the day. The point is, no one can do it. And so, the second point is the remaining or the abiding. It refers to conscious decisions or choices that we make in living the Christian life. Now, Ray Stebbin writes of this passage when he says, When our Lord says, Abide in me, he's talking about the will, about the choices, about the decisions that we make. We must decide to do things which expose ourselves to him and keep ourselves in contact with him. That is what it means to abide in him. We have been placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now we must choose to maintain that relationship by the decisions we make. Decisions to expose ourselves to the word in order to learn more about him and to relate to him in prayer wherein we converse with him. What does that entail, you may be thinking? It's making our decisions to relate to other believers in body life experience. That is, we will begin bearing one another's burdens and confessing our faults and sharing in fellowship with one another. That is how we learn about and see Christ in each other. And all this is designed to relate to him to abide in me. If we do that, we are fulfilling this active, necessary decision of the will to obey his word, to do what he says, and to stay in touch with him. This is why Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf will also not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. 
Now next we are told that the Lord became a human like us. So great was his love for us. The incarnation is Jesus becoming like us so that we might become more like him. It's written of love when it comes to marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become just one flesh. And that is exactly what the eternal son did. He left his father's home in heaven to come to earth to woo and wed his bride, the church. He redeemed her so that the two could then become one. Well, think of it this way. Think of Moses and the burning bush. The bush was in the fire, and the fire was in the bush. The bush was holy not of anything in itself, but because he was holy who dwelt in it. Or maybe this will help. Imagine yourself as a living house. Now, God comes in to rebuild that house. Now, at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains cleared, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. But you knew that those jobs needed to be done, so you're really not all that surprised. But then he starts knocking down walls in a way that hurts dreadfully and does not seem to make much sense to you. We think, what on earth is he up to? The explanation is he is building quite a different house from the one that we thought about building. He's constructing a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and having just gorgeous courtyards. Why? See, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace as he intends to come and live in it himself. Now, if we truly embrace all of this, what will be the result? Jesus tells us in verse 11, it will be joy. Next verse, please. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The joy of Jesus in us. Chesterton called this the gigantic secret of the Christian. Peter calls it joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's, it's joy to the max. And it's an inspiring thought that Jesus calls his followers into joy. You see, the Christian life is not some shallow, insipid following of a traditional kind of pattern. The crowning blessing to which all the rest contribute is full and complete joy. The Lord promised to impart to believers his joy, the same joy that he shares in intimate fellowship with his own Father. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, to the eleven, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The Lord promised us that his own joy will permeate and control our lives of those who walk in communion with him. Jesus means that he had the joy of living the completely fruitful life. And he wants that joy that was already in him to be in us also so that we too can live fruitfully. For far too long, we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Now, I understand the sentiment. But as I've thought more about that, I've come to this conclusion. Listen, Jesus doesn't want to be in your life. Your life is a wreck. Instead, Jesus calls you to come into his life. And his life isn't boring or purposeless or static. It's wild and exhilarating and sometimes unpredictable. So Jesus promises not happiness, which has the root of what happens on any given day. But he promises a constant sense of joy in your heart, regardless of whether things are going particularly great 
or not. So that does not mean your life is going to be trivial, giddy, and trite. It does mean, however, that those times when you do feel discouraged, underneath it all, somehow, mystically, miraculously, and mysteriously, there's still joy. And Jesus said this joy will be in direct proportion to how much we abide in his word. However, some people feel they can have the person of Christ without the doctrine of Christ. They like the idea of Jesus, but they shy away from his teaching. Some even revolt against it. But their goal is impossible. For he has declared that he will come to none and make his abode with none except those who keep his commandments. And it's no cheerless, barren existence that Jesus plans for his people. But the joy of which he speaks come only as they are wholehearted in their obedience to his commands. Will we always get it right? No. But that is where our trajectory lies. We want to get it right. And so really to be half-hearted is to get the worst of both of those worlds. This sentence speaks of the Christian's joy in three senses. Joy attained, joy abiding, and joy abounding. Attained, abiding, and abounding. First, attained. Joy is to be attained as a result of the things that Jesus has been teaching. This is the reason why the Christian must abide in him. So all the views, outlooks, and aspirations of the master will be of those of the disciple as well. Next, the verse speaks of joy abiding in that his joy may be and remain in us. The point of that phrase is that joy does not necessarily remain. Many things can destroy our joy. Sin can destroy it. So can disobedience or unbelief. David confessed in that great 51st Psalm, crying to God, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Please note there, it was not that his salvation was lost, only that the joy of it had evaporated. Now this always happens when we become separated from Christ in the sense of having our fellowship with him broken. In contrast to this, we must abide in him. For when we abide in him, the joy abides also. And finally, we speak of abounding joy. This is the meaning of the clause that your joy might be complete. I wish that all of us Christians were just more joyful. And as I read this verse, I sense that the Lord desires this too. Unfortunately, there are many long faces and dour looks among the saints of God. There's too much defeat, too much unhappiness. But it does not have to be that way. Rather, we should be able to rejoice in Christ, even in the face of arrest, beatings, crucifixion, and death, as Jesus is doing right here. Now, once again, am I there? No, but that is my goal. Jesus says joy will overflow. As I said, joy doesn't refer to a superficial happiness or a shallow cheerfulness. Joy is a deeply felt contentment that transcends difficult circumstances and derives maximum enjoyment from every good experience. And although it's not about laughter, abiding in Christ inspires laughter like you have never experienced in your entire life. Deep, contented joy comes from a place of complete security and confidence that even in the midst of trials, we can have joy. As that old song goes, 
Joy is the flag that flies from the castle of my heart, announcing that the king is in residence there. And I need to remember that. Because, you know, it is possible to pastor a church without abiding in Christ. I've done that a few times in my life, and it is miserable. It's the best way I know to get an ulcer. It's also possible to run a business as a Christian, to teach Bible classes, to be a wife or a husband, or to even counsel people. You can do all those things without abiding in Christ. However, any good that we do and any success we think we're going to enjoy will never have a lasting, eternal impact. Now, conversely, when we obey, when we allow His strength to flow through us, the Lord produces results that defy natural explanation. And things like powerfully effective prayers, God-honoring blessings, unbounded love, and inexplicable joy. C.A. Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers, often struggled with depression. He once said, There are dungeons beneath the castle of despair as dreary as the abodes of the lost, and some of us have been in them. That's honesty. But he also wrote, As the beast in the meadow knows not the far-reaching thoughts of him who reads the stars and threads the spheres, so neither can the carnal man make so much as a guess of what the joys which God hath prepared for them that love him, which any day and every day when our hearts seek it, he revealeth unto us by his spirit. That is the joy of the Lord, fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And, beloved, if we are to reach this point, we must labor to rest. We must labor to maintain our standing. For the Lord says to us to abide in me so that the habit of communion is the life of happiness. So what does all this abiding and joy look like in real terms? How do we actually put it into practice tomorrow? Last verse. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Oh, no. <laughs> Jesus has went from preaching to meddling. He is now telling us that we actually have to love one another the same way that he loved us. It's been said, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. And admittedly, there are many challenges in dwelling below in this sin-cursed world. Even getting along with other blood-bought, born-again believers can be prickly at times. Not you guys. I'm talking about the other churches. Let's face it. A church isn't a nice little club of mutually compatible people. Instead, it's a group of often difficult and processed people. It's full of people filled with quirks, idiosyncrasies, failures, and personality shortcomings who are in a constant need of grace, just as we are. Puritan Evan Hopkins writes, May God's grace give you the necessary humility. Try not to think much less speak of other people's sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. And if on consideration one can find no fault on one's own side, then cry for mercy. This must be a dangerous delusion. Love the Puritans. I miss the old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. In one of them, Calvin expresses regret for having called Susie names 
and Hobbes suggests that Calvin apologize to her. Calvin pondered this for a while and says, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> and listen, we all do. It is humbling to go to another and frankly and freely admit our wrongdoing. But that is what is called for if we are truly to love one another. So when you think of people who are hard to love, there may be a number of names that just now popped into your head, but probably not your own. Yet if we are honest, we're not always easy to love either. God doesn't love us because we're so lovable or because we have something to offer him in return. Romans 5 tells us that God loves us while we were still his enemies. He loved us before we were cleaned up. Our stench couldn't keep away his love. As John would later say, we love because he first loved us. But how is it possible for Jesus to command us to love one another? Can true love really even be commanded? But it gets even harder than that. The Greek word for love there isn't the fickle eros or even the heartfelt philea, but agape. Agape often involves deep feeling, but it always begins with a decision. Agape doesn't consider merit, nor does it wait for inspiration. Agape is the kind of love that is, is exemplified by God Almighty. But it gets even worse than that. The tense of that verb is imperfect, which suggests repeated or ongoing action, as in you are to keep on loving one another. And the quality of that love must be the same kind as the love that we receive from Christ. He is our example, and he is our standard. So the daunting standard for believers' love for each other is set forth in Jesus' words, you must love one another in the same way that I have loved you. We are to love each other as the Lord Jesus Christ loves us this morning. And that does not mean, of course, that believers can love to the limitless extent or in the perfect manner that Jesus does. But it does mean this. Just as Jesus loves sacrificially, so also must we. Walk in love, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.2. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offered in a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The love that believers have for each other is marked by selfless devotion in meeting one another's needs. It is not mere sentiment or superficial attachment. In fact, Christians' love for each other is the church's most powerful apologetic to an unbelieving world. And as John mentioned this morning, the Lord's death at this point is only a matter of a few hours away. And this is the supreme evidence of his love. As his upcoming statement, the greater love has no man than one, than one who will lay down his life for his friends. So speaking of abiding in his word, Jesus says, My word is that as I have loved you, so I also want you to love one another. Let's just be honest. It doesn't matter how much theology we know or how much wisdom that we claim we may have. If we don't love the person sitting in front of you, beside you and behind you, then really, nothing else really matters all that much. So notice, it's a commandment, which means that love is not a matter of emotion, it's a matter of volition. It is a choice that we have to make. Jesus never commands us to feel anything, but he does command us to do certain things. An entire nation was revived when John Knox prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. 
But what many people don't know is what Knox wrote concerning the answer to that prayer. The Lord responded to his heart saying, first die, and then I'll give you Scotland. Make this relationship work, we say, or I'm going to die. The Lord says, die first. Lay down your life for your spouse, your neighbor, your friend. This is not only the proof of your love, but the pathway of love. Because love is not some feeling you hope returns or some kind of elusive mystical emotion. It is the decision to die to your dreams, your desires, your needs, your wants, and instead lay your, your life down for a friend, your better half, your neighbor, your kids, and even your enemies. Again, in the context of Jesus' teaching, love is not so much an emotion as it is a decision. But the beautiful thing is, often when we implement the action, the emotion will follow. Guys, maybe you've lost the feeling for your spouse. Let me give you some free marriage counseling this morning. Treat them like a treasure, and often your emotions will follow that because Jesus taught that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. As we finish up today, I just want us to desire a life of obedience. Not to be saved, but from gratitude that we are saved. So let's hold nothing back. We only get one shot at this life. I heard about a strange baptism practice that was allowed by the church when the Knights of Templar would be baptized. When the church would baptize one of the Knights, they would be baptized with their sword, but they wouldn't take their swords under the water with them. Instead, they would hold their swords up out of the water while the rest of them would be immersed. It was the knight's way of saying to Jesus, you can have control of me, but you can't have this. Jesus, I'm all yours, but who I am and what I am on the battlefield, how I use this sword, that's not part of the deal. Sounds crazy. But I wonder if that was still the practice today. We might not hold up a sword, but my guess is some people would hold up a wallet. Some people would hold up a remote control. Others would hold up a laptop. So my challenge to all of us today is to surrender to that one who is the only one worthy of such devotion. Let us pray. So glad, Lord, that you are the vine. You have given us the example of perfect love. And though I fall so short so often, thankful that in my heart I want to do right. And I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice and those who will be watching on the Internet that you would make that their desire also. We will never be perfect in practice, but Lord, we want to make our practice to begin to match more with our position. If you have called us saints in position, let us be saints in practice. We ask in Christ's name, amen.